chapter 17 is where we find ourselves today. And this is the famous passage where <coughs> Paul goes to the Areopagus. Paul goes to Mars Hill in Athens. And, and he preaches there before the intellectuals of the day. And, and, and so what I want to highlight this morning is what we see, I think, as a pattern from this text and a challenge about sharing our faith, sharing Christ with intellectuals, sharing Christ with thinkers, sharing Christ with philosophers, sharing Christ with those who tend to have a lot of questions, those who tend to have uh, worldviews and ideas that, that, that are antithetical to the gospel and challenging. And the reality of it is, is that for most of us, we tend to find ourselves apprehensive about sharing Christ in general, but the thought and the idea of sharing Christ with uh, someone who we might think to be an intellectual is overwhelming when we're honest about it. So often we, we, know, we know that God has called us to share the gospel with everyone, but the reality of it is that sometimes we feel so uh, insignificant or not prepared and we look at people who might have great learning or you know letters before their name or they've accomplished much or they're they're just they're very logical they're very intellectual they've read a lot they know the philosophers they love to debate and sometimes if we're honest we just don't think to share the gospel with them sometimes we don't maybe think this directly, but we think they're too smart for the gospel. They won't hear it. I, I'm not in a position where I could share it with them. Let, let somebody who has, a, who has a doctorate share it with them. And more and more, what I have seen is that because we tend to shy away from intellectuals, and, and more and more that, that the... Uh, that the cultural, intellectual institutions, the, the academy and, and, and culture. We talked about some of these things last week. More and more as we see that they become more and more lost, that different theories and, 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 and different um, predispositions come into those and, and become normalized, Christians are more and more silent to the point to where we have no voice anymore in a lot of these places. I mean, it's the reality of it. I, I can tell you just in general, when I, was, when I first came to the Lord, I remember when I would visit churches or at my church, there would always be a number of individuals from the community that were doctors or that were lawyers, you know, that were more intellectual type. And I see that less and less. And a big reason why I think we see that less and less is because those individuals that have spent that amount of time in um, in, in the, 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 the academy, in scholarship, they have heard godless theory after godless theory, and they've been taught in such a way where, where anything and everything, whether or not it philosophically should be argued for God or not, God is erased and God is neglected and everything is, is, is amounted to naturalism and our own cause, and, and there's no spiritual effect of it anymore and so these individuals that spend so much of their time and their education and their formative years in those they haven't heard of Jesus they haven't had influence of godly people in their lives and so in many ways those places those university campuses those 
places of, of uh, intellectual thought, as our culture would regard it, they're some of the most lost places in our country. And the effect it affects us as well. We see this in politics. We see, the, we see this as it boils down to every part of our society. Lostness is growing. People who are against God, not just people who are, who, 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 you know, they don't care, but who are, are adamantly against God, the things of God, the people of God, it, it is increasing in our communities. And I think in large part, is because the church has not considered the need for everyone, even the intellectuals, even the hard ones, the ones that are going to ask a lot of questions, the ones who might make fun of us, the ones who we think we might not have all the answers to. Instead, we think, well, someone else will do it. And someone else will do it. And, and, and someone else will do it. And you know what ends up happening? Nobody does it. When you read through the book of Acts, you see the Paul and the other apostles and the, 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 the in individuals of the early church, they had no problem going to anyone and everyone, no matter what their position, and telling them about Jesus. You remember on the first missionary journey when they went to Cyprus? You remember the individual who got saved there on the island, the proconsul? He, he, he would be like the... The, the, the individual in charge of all Roman authority. He would be like the, the appointed president of that, of that country. And Paul goes and boldly shares the gospel with him and he comes to faith in Jesus Christ. A, a very interesting thing sometimes to do is to read history, church history from the early years. And I'm always amazed when I read about early church history, about the individuals of high standing in the Roman culture that accept Jesus Christ. I, I mean, in the first century, the church explodes. And it's everybody, from the slaves to the rulers. The testimony of Jesus Christ is so strong, if you read church history, that, that for years, Rome opposes Christianity, right? And then Constantine, the emperor of Rome, converts to Christianity, and in a moment, Christianity goes from the enemy of Rome to the established religion of Rome. Now there's pluses and negatives to that that we can debate, but the reality of it is this. Christians did not hesitate sharing Christ with anyone. And we shouldn't hesitate sharing Christ with anyone. So I want us to read today from this very interesting passage where Paul is, is, finds an opportunity to go before the, uh, the most intellectual uh, arena of the day of religious, spiritual, philosophical thought as he goes to the Areopagus. And, uh, and we find this, uh, it's a long passage, so I'm going to read the sections as we go through it. Uh, there might be some things that I, that, I, that I miss in the details, but I, I want you to get the big overall thought, and you can go back and, and fill in the blanks and look at it. But there's, there's, a, there's quite a few things that I want to show you as we look at this. The first is this. If we're going to share the gospel with inter, intellectuals, if we're going to share Christ with them, first, we have to be perturbed by the sinful culture. 
We have to be perturbed by the sinful culture. That, that's a word I love, perturbed. <laughs> Things that just perturb you, right? Things that just get under your skin, just the annoying things that, that always get you. That's what we see here in this text. Look at verse 16 of chapter 17. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked. His spirit was perturbed. Within him, he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seemed to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and hearing of something new. Paul is in Athens. Not his plan. He got ran out of Thessalonica. He went to Berea. The Thessalonians came to Berea. It was very violent. He was in great danger. And so they sent Paul off. They, they sent him off. And so he's alone. He ends up in Athens, a great city of the day. And, and he is... As he's in Athens, he's just perturbed. As he looks around Athens, he's just perturbed. Because it's full of idols. It was said that during this day, you were more likely to meet an idol than a person in Athens. There's a count by one historian that says there were over 30,000 idols established in Athens and 10,000 residents. And so if you can just imagine Paul who grew up a good Jewish boy, keeping all the Jewish rules, instilled in him from the day of his birth, do not worship idols. And he goes then to Athens, and he looks around, and all he sees is idols. Have you ever been to a community like that? Have you ever been to a place like that? Where, where the, the community is so against the things of God, that it's just blatant and out there. I mean, we call Vegas what? Sin City. And they like that reputation. You, you think of Mardi Gras and all that's associated with the debauchery that's associated with that. And they like that. They like that. That's what they're known for. That's what brings in tourism. You, you think of it's spring break. Even in Florida, we have certain communities here. That they try to attract young people to come and stay in the hotels and buy their stuff by all kinds of wicked debauchery. And, and so you can imagine walking around in a setting like that as a Christian and, and constantly being perturbed. What, what is this? Don't they know? And, and so this is the motivation then that we see for Paul to share the gospel. This must be our motivation. <clears throat> Friends, it's sad that we would look at individuals who we would consider intellectuals and we'd say they're probably too smart to hear the gospel. And, and so we'll let someone else do it. 
When instead, we should look at the emptiness and, and that they've based their lives on lies and, and that if they don't turn to Christ, that they're going to hell and that they're teaching others things against God. And, and our spirit should be provoked. We should be perturbed. And so he's perturbed. What does he do about it? Well, it says he begins to reason with everyone he can. He goes to the synagogues. And he starts talking to them there. He goes to the marketplace where the Gentiles would gather. And he starts talking to them there. Everywhere he goes, he's reasoning with them. And I want you to understand this. Because so often today what we find is that if we're perturbed by the culture, we should go get a sandwich board and wear it on us that says you're going to hell and march around with a megaphone. That's not what Paul did. He reasoned with individuals. Individuals will not come to Christ if we don't reason with them the truth. What we see in this text is so antithetical to what some people try to put on Paul as a model. Because Paul didn't go around the marketplace making enemies. Paul went around the marketplace trying to reason to the fact that people that believe something very different than him said, he's got something interesting to say. Now some people said he's a babbler. But nobody said he's an absolute jerk. Does that make sense? Our goal and our prayer is that we could enter into gospel conversations with individuals. That, that, that we could, that God would find favor amongst us with them. That we might be able to enter into real conversations to talk about real spiritual matters and real needs and real desires and real wants that we could show how Jesus Christ is Lord of all. So that's what he does. It says here that there's two, uh, there's two prevailing philosophies of the day here. You have the, the Epicureans, and they taught that the goal in life is pleasure. They, they taught that, that what, inhi what inhibits us is our, uh, is our own thought that there is morality. That the greatest... The greatest expression that you could have is whatever you find happy, whatever you find joy in. You know any Epicureans today? They go by different names, but that's the rule of our culture. Whatever you find pleasure in, you be you. Love is love. Find the authentic you, whatever that may be. That's our culture today, isn't it? It takes on different names. It might not be formal, but that's the way that we want to live. The, the other culture is the, kind of the opposite of it, the Stoics. <clears throat> the Stoics saw the excess of pleasure and the emptiness that it brings because it does. You, you can live for all the sinful pleasure you want, and it's going to break you. It will break you. Look at Hollywood. Look at these individuals that have unlimited resources that can go and do whatever they do. And they chase everything under the sun. And their lives are a wreck. And so the Stoics look at that. And they develop kind of an opposite philosophy. Life is not about pleasure. Life is about knowledge and knowing and temperance. Life is about controlling yourself and controlling your emotions. That you don't live according just to pleasure and live out of control. The reality of it is, is that they become very... Th these individuals are often legalists, aren't they? There's a lot of Stoics in the church. 
They, by their own power, are very proud at what they can do that you don't seem to have control over. And it creates this great pride. Paul argues neither for the Stoics or neither for the Epicureans. Paul is going around talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Commentators kind of think that they, they think that when Jesus talks about resurrection, that the Greek word is similar to the word of a Greek God. And so they're thinking that, that he's talking about this new development of gods where you have uh, Jesus and the person resurrection. And so you have these two new gods. And they're like, this is new. We haven't heard this before. This is interesting. Did you see that indictment? They love nothing more than just arguing all day long about new What's new? And so they invite Paul and they invite him there to the Areopagus where he comes to speak. And <laughs> this, is a, this is a very formal, uh, intellectual center for the debate of philosophies. And they invite him to, to come and to do this. And so then we, we go to our second point. So the first is we have to be perturbed by the sinful culture. Paul not only is perturbed by the sinful culture, but Paul seeks to understand the motivations of the sinful culture. And we'll see this as he approaches them. He quotes their own philosophers. He knows and understands what they believe so that he can reason with them. Right? Paul's goal is we're, we're going to see over and over again Paul reasoned. He reasoned. He reasoned. He proclaimed the gospel in such a way that he provoked questions and thought and interaction so that he could show that Jesus, following Jesus, is much better than any other thing that you would chase. And to do that, we have to understand at some level what they believe, right? That we could reason with them. The second is this. We have to engage on shared ground. Engage them on shared ground. <coughs> Again, Paul did not run around throwing out tracks, putting tracks on urinals. Right, guys? Pull into the bathroom, and right there's the track. Um, like, I'm going to touch that. Paul didn't go around throwing out tracks. Paul didn't go around with sandwich boards and megaphones. He went around looking for opportunities that he might engage in gospel conversations with individuals. That he might talk about spiritual things. That he might open up from the, the hardest individual to the softest individual who, who's just ready to say, what must I do to be saved? It, it didn't matter. Paul didn't filter them. Paul just went around and wherever he could engage with a person on spiritual things, he would engage with them on spiritual things. And, and he would start these conversations by common ground. By, by asking questions, by considering where they were and what they believed. Look at verse 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, all these idols, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What, therefore, you worship is unknown, this I proclaim to you. Paul comes and it is an incredible opening, right? Isn't this like, 
It's just the best. But notice what he did. Paul is, Paul is angry about these idols. Right? Paul is, he is irate inside. His spirit is provoked every time he sees an idol to be worshipped. And they're everywhere. And, and it would be very easy for Paul to get up to have this opportunity and say, You idiots, why are you doing this? And so often, that's the way we try to start gospel conversations with people. Would you listen to that? Would you, would, you, would you process and reason the next sentence that a person had to say if that's how they started the conversation with you? It's done. Right? That's everything that follows. That's the reality of it. But what Paul does here is he engages them. He, he, asks a, he asks a question. He, he provokes within them something to get their attention, that they might listen further. I, I see that you're religious. You know, like, Paul's not saying that's a good religious thing. I see that you're religious. You have idols. You have, you have objects. He doesn't even call them idols. He says you have objects of worship all over. And I even saw one that that you put up that says, just in case we missed a God, we got one for you. To the unknown God. And Paul says, I want to show you who he is. He's the one. What an opening, isn't it? I mean, think about that. So often when we begin to talk to individuals, we are perturbed. We are perturbed if we come to the point that we want to share the gospel with an individual. But, but how do we start that? I want to encourage you to look at what Paul did. Engage on common ground. Here's, here's some questions that, that you could ask. Do you have any spiritual beliefs? Is there anything spiritual that, that, that you believe? Uh, you, see a person, you see a person spouting off intellectual ideas. I, I see that you've done some thinking about spiritual things. Have you ever given a thought to who Jesus is? Not just intellectuals, but just in general. Find something in common as, we, as we, you want to share the gospel with somebody. Um, people with tattoos. It's so easy to start a meaningful conversation with them. What does that mean? Why did you, why did you get that? It's rare that you'll find somebody that says, yeah, you know, I just did it. Usually there's incredible stories. There's hurt and there's trauma or there's joy. All about these things. And, and you very quickly can develop a conversation that's meaningful and very quickly find opportunities then to talk about spiritual things and talk about who Jesus is. Meet them on common ground. Again, Paul knew about this inscription. Paul knew about their culture. Paul observed them. He observed who they were that he might be able to do that. He, he cared for the people. He cared that the gospel would be received. Sometimes we just care that the gospel is shared. And, and, and we are to share the gospel. But we should have a concern that the way that we share the gospel conveys the message of the gospel. That we're not just a people with a message of grace, but we are a people of grace. Now that doesn't change the message of the gospel. Hear me out. 
Because there's individuals that didn't take that line and they go, well, you know, people don't want to hear this. They don't want to hear about that. Let's not, let's change it. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that we should passionately, lovingly seek to engage individuals where they are with the true message of Jesus Christ. That's what we see in the scriptures. That's what we see here with Paul. He goes to these people who have very different uh, thoughts, have very different practices. In fact, they do things that offend him to his very core. And yet we see him approach them with kindness. Because not only is he perturbed about the idols, but he's perturbed that they don't know Jesus. And he knows what fixes the idols. And that's knowing Jesus. So what's his message? Let me say don't feel intimidated to talk to intellectuals about Jesus. I, I, don't, don't feel intimidated. Here's the reality is that these individuals, especially people in all kinds of philosophies and all kinds of, they love to debate and debate and debate and debate, but they really don't know where they land so often. It's just a circle. They're just debating ideas that, that, that are ideas that people have debated, that people have debated that they have no answer to. And what you have is you have the assurity in your heart and in your life and in your experience and your testimony that Jesus is Lord. I pastored a church outside of Detroit and we had some wonderful, wonderful older black ladies that would come in and they were, they, they just, they, they would tell it like it is and I loved it, man, they they amen to everything. They'd get me so hyped up. It was just, I loved it. And uh, one week I preached a sermon similar to this. I don't remember what it was, but I remember one of them came up to me and she goes, you know what, Pastor? I said, what? She goes, I ain't scared of those intellectuals. I said, why is that? She goes, they ain't nothing but educated fools. <laughs> the fool says in his heart, there is no God. What a true statement. How is it that Satan has convinced us that we should be on the defensive, that we should be afraid, that we should not engage in ideas and philosophy when we hold the one true knowledge of the God of the universe who's made everything, who sustains everything, and who has saved us through Jesus Christ? That's where we're going to go. I'm going to do this quick. I know you're looking. There's like a lot of points left, okay? How do we do it? What's the message? Well, here's the trick. It's no different than for anyone else. God, man, Christ response. Uh, look at what Paul does here. We'll do this quick. First, he talks about the sovereignty of God. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, the being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he need anything since he himself gives all mankind life and breath and everything. He begins with God and who God is. And that man is accountable to God. That there is a truth. Because there is a creator. Because there is a sovereign God. And you owe everything that you are and every moment that you have to that God. He starts with highlighting who God is. And in doing that, every man is accountable to God. He himself gives mankind life and breath 
and everything, everything that you have, everything that you're able to do, the very breath in your lungs at this moment is a gift from the sovereign God. Well, that puts things in perspective real quick, doesn't it? Lofty philosophies being debated all of a sudden end. Show them the sinfulness of man. Show them the sovereignty of God. Show them the sinfulness of man. This is why, this is why that argument all of a sudden makes us gulp. Because God has placed in all of us a conscience that points to him. A hole in our lives that only he can fill. Look at verse 26. He says, And he made from one man every nation of all mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted peoples and the boundaries of their dwelling places, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said. For we indeed are his offspring." Here's what I want you to see. Paul isn't saying you have the ability to find God in yourself. That's not what Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is that God is near. God, you know of this God. Why do you worship such things? Why do you have a, a desire to worship? Why is, you, why is it in every culture an innate desire to worship? Why is it in every culture that there is innate morals and ethics that are fairly universal throughout all cultures? That's what he's pointing to. Paul will talk about this in the same way in Romans 1 where he says this. For since the creation of the world, the invisible attributes, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood that though, that through, that <coughs> understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. That's the same argument that Paul's making here. Paul's not saying you can save yourself. What Paul is saying is God is near. You know of him. When you're quiet and you stop and you think, in the moment of, when you see a death, when death impacts you, when you grieve, you realize the finiteness. When you look up to the stars in a, in a clear sky at night and you see the wonder and the grandeur of God, when you look at the small things of life, when you consider the ant and the intricacies of the ant and how it's put together, you realize Vain, empty, worldly philosophies. They can't answer this. There is God. And if there is God, we are creation. Paul's saying, you have rejected him. He's near, and yet you have rejected him. God, man, Christ. Show them the substitute of Christ. In this preaching, Christ is largely assumed. But remember, why is it that Paul's at the Areopagus? Because he's been teaching about Jesus and the resurrection. And so Paul has already made the case for Jesus in large part. They've already heard this in large part. And yet still, even within this, verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness... By a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given the assurance to all by rise, raising him from the dead. You see, Paul didn't mention, it's not that Paul didn't mention Jesus here. Paul had already laid the foundation of who Jesus was, and he is holding them accountable to that because God has brought one to save us. 
He has risen for the dead, from the dead to prove and show that all that he said is true. And he will be coming back. God, man, Christ. But we don't fully preach the gospel if we just leave it there. At this point, we've just shared our intellectual idea against their intellectual idea. Right? We, we, we've given a foundation and, and we've given a reason and, and we've given the things that have happened. But the gospel must also include response. You, you, you must react to this. You must, you must follow Christ. You must believe. And that's what he says here. Look at verse 30 and 31. Therefore, having overlooked times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. There is a day coming, and it is near. It could be at any moment. And on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. For some, that will be a confession of joy. And for those who have rejected Christ have put off following Christ, have said, I'll do it tomorrow, I'll get my affairs in order, I'll, I'll do it later, I'll think about it later. That moment in that day will be a confession of a king who stands over you in judgment. Therefore, we must repent and choose Christ. We must believe in Jesus. God, man, Christ, response. You see how he preaches the gospel? Again, the secret is this. How do you share the gospel with intellectuals? <laughs> same way you share it with anyone else. Did, did you get that? Everything that I've said here is the same way that we would share the gospel with anyone else. We would be perturbed about the condition that they're in. We, we would seek to engage them on common ground. How might we have a, a, a meaningful gospel conversation with this individual? We would share with them about who God is. We would share with them uh, about the sinfulness of man and how they've rejected God. We would send... Share with them about Jesus Christ who was sent from God to be our substitute, to take our sin upon himself that we might receive righteousness and forgiveness and life eternal. And that would you believe in this? You must believe, confess your sinfulness and turn to Christ, follow him, and you will be saved. That message is no different for any person, is it? And the same ending is true, too. Trust God to save. We are to do our part, and we allow God to do his part. L look at what, verse 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some scoffed at him. Some are like, you are an idiot. This life is all there is. Live it up and get in a hole. Some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. Paul went out from their midst, and then look at verse 34. Some of the men joined him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius, the Areopagite. This is somebody who's a leader of the Areopagus. And a woman named Darmus and others with them. Friends, 
We can go and share the gospel with anyone knowing this. Our job is to compassionately, lovingly engage and share the message of the truth of Jesus Christ. Our job is not gauged in the results. Our, 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 our job is gauged in the faithfulness to do it. And God, God will reap the results. Friends, as we close, I want to challenge you. Is there someone in your life, is there someone you know, is there someone who you have, maybe you hadn't said it out loud, but you know that you have neglected to share the gospel with them because you thought, eh, they're just too smart. They wouldn't want to hear this. They're too intellectual. They, they have too many different philosophies. They're so caught up in the world that they're, they're just not even going to listen to me. Friends, I want to challenge you today that that's wrong. That God may very well, in fact, be calling you to figure out a way to begin to pray for that individual, to pray for the opportunity for a gospel conversation that you could engage them with God, man, Christ, respond. That God might save them. All are saved that way. We have to be perturbed for the culture. We have to engage in shared ground. We have to share the gospel message fully. God, man, Christ, response. And then we trust God to save. Some will hear. Some will mock us. They'll make fun of us. They might persecute us. But God will honor. He will always honor our obedience to him. Dear Jesus. Let me pray.